0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of Technology and Humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Okay, so my guest today is Kate Devlin. Uh, Kate is a senior lecturer in the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College London. Having begun her career as an archaeologist before moving into computer science, Kate's research is now in the fields of human-computer interaction and artificial intelligence, investigating how people interact with and react to technology in order to understand how emerging and future technologies will affect us and the society in which we live. Kate has become a driving force in the field of intimacy and technology running the UK's first sex tech hackathon in 2016. And she has become the face of sex robots, quite literally in the case of one miscaptioned tabloid photograph. She's written articles on the subject for The New Scientist, Prospect, and The Sunday Times, amongst others. She's been featured on BBC Radio's One to Five, and has made a number of TV appearances along with TEDx talks and numerous other tech and philosophy events, festivals, and comedy nights. She was also probably the first person to say sex robots in the House of Lords in an official capacity, at least. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. So I invited you on the show today to talk about your recent book, uh, Turned On, Science, Sex and Robots, published by, as uh, it Bloomsbury Sigma? That's right. So I really enjoyed this book, and I had a short review of it on my website. And I said at the time that I thought it was a thoughtful, fair-minded, and fun read on the history and the ethics of sex tech. It focuses on, in particular on robots, but actually has a much broader remit than its title might suggest. I also noted that although I have a vested interest in selling copies of my own book on this topic, <laughs> if I were to recommend one book to somebody that would be a, the ideal introduction, this would be it, I think.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
1: <laughs> so, you know, Kate and I have spoken before at this topic, and at length there's a video of us online chatting about this at the Virtual Futures Salon in London. Um, talking about my book in particular. So on this occasion, the official premise of our conversation is is your book, Kate. But I thought we might try and keep the conversation somewhat fresh um, and not uh, focus on the questions that we are usually asked about this topic, and we'll yeah. look at some of the underexplored territory. So uh, I just thought I'd ask an initial question, which is, you know, why did you say sex robots in the House of
2: Lords? (laughs) Well, um, it was because I was giving evidence at an all party parliamentary group hearing and we were talking about the possible um, implications and influence of AI in society. So I was mentioning sex robots as one thing amongst many about people becoming... Um, dependent or involved with or using robots, particularly care robots and AI. So it's got to mention there, but it's actually been mentioned a few times. I think the, there's also been other debates around um sexual offences and sex robots have been mentioned by other people, and I think also the um, campaign against sex robots has brought this up as well in debate. So, um, it's it, it's it's a strange place to be talking about it, um, but yeah, it was interesting.
1: Yeah, I suppose the other question I just wanted to ask that came out of your bio there was, um, how did you become the face of sex robots? Uh, there's uh, really two questions here. There's an interesting story about that uh, miscaptioned photograph, but also... <laughs> More generally, I just say, like, why did you get interested in this particular topic?
2: Well, the first part, Um, in 2016, I was co-chair of the Love and Sex with Robots conference, and it was held at Goldsmiths where I was working at the time. And we had so much press coverage about it. And one of the tabloids, I think it was the Daily Mail, ran a, a, an article on it where they printed a picture of a sex robot, but they captioned it with my name and my credentials. Uh, so for a while, I was the face, the literal face of a sex robot. Um, But more more generally... I think it, it it was a topic that had interested me for a while. I mean, what's not to be interested in there? But it came out of discussions in the pub, really, where we were at the EU COG conference. And in the pub afterwards, talking about cognitive systems, we were discussing, well, what would happen if a system could feel the same things that humans feel? And you know, lots of people focus on things like what if a machine could feel pain, what if a machine could feel love? And sex seemed a, another thing that has a, a big influence on how we think. So there's so much going on in our brains when we're sexually aroused or when we desire something. So I thought that's very interesting from a cognitive point of view about how we process that kind of information cognitively. Um, and from there, really looking into what what all was there, and and where was it going to go? So myself and a few others put together a, a bid to research this further for a very very large bid. Um, we got shortlisted for it, but then we didn't unfortunately get the money in the end. But you know there was enough there to to keep the interest going and and do more research.
1: And yeah, how many years have you been focused on this topic in particular?
2: It's probably about four years now, three or four years. So it started off just generally wondering what was out there and having a look into it in the kind of more broad terms. And at the start, there wasn't much going on in the real world about that. So there wasn't really all that much in terms of development of actual sex robots. And then of course over the past couple of years, there have been these companies that are trying to bring out prototype versions of them. And so it's gone very, very quickly and very fast, as you know yourself. You know, it's gone it's gone from being a topic where people go is that really a topic? Do we really have to worry about this? To something that's being supposedly happening right now. It's not really, they've not actually shipped out the first one to the customers yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask this a bit later, but I think this is an opportune moment to bring it up, which is just that I, I had correspondence with you beforehand asking you about like, what was the question that you wish you were asked on this and you aren't. Yeah. And you had mentioned that one thing you wish people asked directly is why are people taking this seriously or why is this is this really a serious research topic
2: Yeah because I think there's there's always that doubt when people start talking to you about it like really is that really a thing I, I agree it sounds incredibly trivial when you start talking about it um it, uh, it definitely sparks interest but I think there is that. That that people want to know is it really valid? And I think initially we ran into some problems where you were getting eye rolls and and people saying well, that's not really a research topic. That's not really an academic thing, is it? But I think there really is because there's so much contained in it. It's not just about sex and robots. It's about our relationships with technology. It's about intimacy. It's about what's going to happen in the future in a world where we become increasingly reliant on technology. And in a way, it's also a microcosm of of the tech world in terms of its bias and who's developing it and who's getting left out of the process. And there's just so much there. So I think it really is a valid area, even if nothing happens, even if this whole sex robot thing never really takes off. And I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that it will ever be in its current form mainstream. It still is a great opportunity to sort of examine what is going to happen with us in the future in that world.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like a an, an obvious topic of research given the centrality and importance of sex to human life. Maybe that's something that a lot of people want to deny or are uncomfortable talking about, but it seems like as academics and as researchers, we have, a well, some of us we anyway, have a duty to take these things seriously. And I think it's important that somebody does look into it.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I think there's a reticence in academia to discuss sex outside of a um, shaping it as a kind of a health issue, or you know, a, some sexual sexual health issue, really. And so, when you start saying, "Well, what are people doing for pleasure?" that's that's not taken as seriously. Um, so, you know, there seems to be we must look at sex from a psychological perspective or from a, a biological perspective, and the idea that that sex is also something very very common and pleasurable doesn't seem to be seen as being academic enough sometimes, I think. So it's very hard to get funding for this kind of thing, definitely. There are some people who, you know, there's some grant bodies that are willing to to take the risk. But by and large, if you say, well, we want to look at how people experience pleasure and how that can be incorporated with technology, there's not the validity or the sort of rigid academic validity that, that might be expected from that.
1: Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that yourself as a, as a researcher? I mean, or how do you feel you're treated as a researcher if somebody is focusing on this topic? I mean, just to speak from my own perspective here, I do worry sometimes that people take me maybe less seriously when they think that this is a major aspect of, of my research.
0: Um,
2: I th- yeah, yeah, I think there is an element of that. And I've watched it I mean, I've written articles because I do a lot of science communication stuff, and I've written a lot of articles about this. And it's really interesting reading the comment section. I know you're never supposed to read the comment section, <laughs> and I try and filter out the ones that are directly, personally <laughs> uh, targeting me. But you, you get people Im- immediately going, Well, what, what kind of topic is this? What academics shouldn't be working on this. Why is a university looking at this? But then immediately they start getting responses to that, and people saying, but what if someone couldn't have a, a human partner? What if they were able to have a, a robot partner? Or what if someone was disabled and technology was assistive in some way? Or, you know, what if they made a child robot? Would that be a bad thing? And is it cheating? And all those kind of things. So very, very quickly, those questions get picked up. But I think there is there initially, a, a yeah, there's that kind of wariness of, is this really real? So, yeah, I don't know. I've got a very understanding department here, very very into the whole thing so that's
1: good yeah i mean i, I also often use the joke uh, it's not really that much of a joke and i probably used this before with you in fact in conversation so maybe i shouldn't repeat it but uh, there, too... there was a guy there's a famous geneticist steve jones who had this line about uh, as a geneticist his job was to make sex boring and <laughs> i used to say that well you know as a an ethicist or legal um, scholar, I, my job was to make sex robots boring by focusing on what I thought were the you know, really important and serious things. So I, I, my view is that if people read my work, they would get a sense that it was an important and serious topic and worth taking seriously. But um, initially, you probably entice them in with that kind of prurient or titillating interests that people have as well i It's
2: definitely that, and it, it all ties in as well. I know later on, hopefully, we're going to talk about the media hype, but it definitely ties in with that—that that current interest. But I think, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you know the the idea that there can be scholarly work on this really strikes people as being amusing sometimes. um And I've recommended your book to to loads of people who said, "You oh, know, is this a thing? Are there a, are people are actually working on this?" And I say, "Yeah, go and get this book called Robot Sex. It's really good. It'll tell you all about it." And so I, there is there is acceptance that it is something that can be studied, but you know. Do, you don't you hear so many subjects in academia being dismissed as being sort of trivial and fluffy or, or there they go again um, which is very unfair because you look at any subject it's got there's stuff in there to talk about so yeah it there's def it's definitely much more than what it would initially seem
1: yeah one way that we can kind of illustrate why it's much more than it may initially seem and also why it's such a, I think a central part of human life is actually the rich history of sex technology. And this is something that you bring out a lot in the first couple of chapters of your book. So one of the things from your bio as well is that you started life as an archaeologist and yeah. some people might think there's a, <laughs> a, quite a leap from archaeology to sex robots, but actually there isn't is there
2: no so the, there's a very very long history of the idea of the sex robot, and that's been very very exciting to look into and um one of my friends is a class assistant and she and I were talking about this and realized there's so much of our work has overlap because she was able to identify lots of myth and stories that explore the idea of the perfect artificial lover you know going back earlier even than the pygmalion story that most people are familiar with and these depictions of the ideal form the ideal human being created that's that's a really old old story and we see it repeated down the years and we hear t- tales of it down the years so there's definitely always that idea that narrative going on and then as well as that the, the sort of sex tech side of it there have always been devices used to pleasure people that you know they use them for pleasure so they're all you know we've got very very old accounts of of written accounts of, of dildos for example um so there's nothing new there there's nothing and i think that's the thing that always i loved about archaeology is that people don't change that much society doesn't change that much sure the 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 norms of the society change but people themselves they're always they're always interested in the same things and sex is definitely one of those things
1: yeah and the key bits of trivia from the first chapter was like what's the first sex toy recorded and also what's yeah. the first Kind of a discussion of a sex robot or a quasi robot in. Yeah, so the literature. first,
2: um, well, we don't know that it was a sex toy, but certainly the first sort of phallic shaped objects date back, you know, almost went back to 30,000 years old, sort of stone or bone or um, antler carvings of, of a phallus. You know, there's lots of these around. We don't know if they were used for sexual purposes, um, but, you know, might have been. But definitely by by Greek times there were definitely sex toys being used. So yeah, you know, society's not that unchanging, I imagine there's always been that aspect to it. And then in terms of myth, um, well, there's the, the creation myth of Pandora is one of the earliest in that Pandora was a um, a woman created by by the gods and given an artificial intelligence. I mean she wasn't specifically designed for the purpose of sex, but there's that idea of the creation of a woman and gifted attributes by the God, by a team of programming gods and then um the the tale of uh, Ladomia, whose husband was killed in battle, and she created a, an effigy of him made of of bronze, some stories say say it was made of wax um and she took it to bed with her and the the idea that not only is this first idea of this of a, a sex robot going back that far, but also that the first one that story it was a male version, which is really interesting too.
1: yeah, I found that interesting as well because um. I've heard the Pygmalion story, and obviously, most modern sex robots, as we'll talk about, and probably in a, in a bit, are female in form. Yeah. It was interesting that that first story was um, female male. I hope so.
2: Yeah, yeah, which is something we don't really see again until you know we things like Steven Spielberg's film AI, where there's Jigolo Joe as a male sex robot, but he is not portrayed in the same way as the female sex robot. So you know, he's he's much more. Uh, sensitive and emotional, and you know, much more of a romantic nature rather than a sexual nature.
1: I mean, another thing that comes out in the first chapter of your book as and that's something that I've read a bit more about recently, is the myth around the creation of the first vibrators. So, you know, the story that I was familiar with, which I think is now viewed to be incorrect, is that they were used as a kind of treatment for sexually frustrated housewives in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. But that's now been debunked
2: that's that's, yeah that's been more or less debunked so um hallie lieberman has written a wonderful book called buzz that goes through the history of the vibrator and certainly uh, as much as possible my book i was going back to primary sources which is fascinating i think i've it's probably as much work in that as as doing a phd because you know you're going back to the very very first sources and so when i was looking as well i couldn't see I couldn't find any um, evidence of this being used on women. Sure, certainly there's allusions to it being a, a sexual thing later on. Um, so it's clearly adopted to that. But initially, the the whole patent of the electromechanical vibrator, there was absolutely no mention of hysteria or anything like that. Um, and Holly Lieberman's book looked really in detail at that and found that it was a theory that was put forward by an earlier author writing about vibrators, but without any evidence really it was sort of a supposition more than anything and so a few people have rebutted it um so it it looks as if that even though we all want to we buy into this myth of it and tv programs have been made about it and films have been made about it there's really no evidence that a vibrator was ever used to give women orgasms to cure hysteria
1: so why were they created initially was it
2: um for for pain relief a bit like a tens machine so you know putting a, a a buzzing Electrical piece of electrical equipment on the muscle for relief, you know, and it was it specifically the guy who patented it specifically stayed away lit, you know, in terms of writing about genital areas. And actually it was aimed towards men as well for for, muscle, for pain relief of muscles.
1: Yeah, and actually one of the most popular modern sex toys, the Hitachi Magic Wand. Yeah.
2: Is, so the Hitachi yeah. Magic Wand was marketed as, uh, as a personal massager, which the company very clearly Wanted it to be, but very, very quickly got picked up as a sex toy and used in porn and, and became more and more widespread. And um, yeah, so they to the point where the company Hitachi actually, actually wanted to distance themselves from their
1: product. Yeah. And they don't actually use their company name and the marketing for no, like, it at all. It's
2: yeah. now the original magic wand, apparently.
1: Yeah. It's still widely available and visible in many Porn movies and videos at
2: this. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's one of the most popular um, vibrators on the market.
1: I mean, I'm going through some of this trivia that I found interesting in the book. I saw. I mean, trivia is not the correct term for it. Um, it's these are important and interesting facts. I think. But what was the most interesting thing that you learned in the process of researching the book?
2: Um, the most interesting thing. I mean, there was so, so much. I kept going down all these little rabbit holes and finding more and more fascinating things. Um, but I think overall. couple of things. One that is that it's this the sex robot thing isn't even here and yet you know it's not it's not actually real and yet it's treated as if it's the downfall of society. Um and the other is that I talk to doll owners, sex doll owners, and there's this perception that they are isolated individuals who can't talk to normal humans and so they have a doll as a companion. And that is just not the truth at all. I met and talked to wonderful Chatty people who have just essentially got a hobby that is slightly different from normal, and in far from being isolated they 've actually formed a community of their own, um, which actually I find really heartening it's it, technology that 's actually brought people together
1: i mean on this on the way in which d- these doll users treat the dolls and their, the community that's set up around them i mean did you share the initial maybe stigma towards them, that they were these socially isolated people and that was overturned through your research? And also, how did you learn about them and research them?
2: Yeah, I don't know that I so much shared it in that I I, I sort of bought into the idea that there must be something, something, not necessarily wrong, but something slightly unusual in someone who would go and buy a sex doll. I'd read lots of, newspaper reports or seen films you know Lars and the real girl things like that where you, you, the the person owning a sex doll is portrayed as being quite isolated and Not able to form proper social connections, so I kind of had bought into that a bit, thinking, well, of course, if they've got a sex doll, then they must have something lacking in their social communication. That was so unfair, and I was really pleased that I was able to go back and and rethink that and revise that when I started talking to people. So I, I, you know, I got chatting to people on Twitter. Um, I I read a lot of um, the the doll community forums, and yeah, the people buy these sex dolls for many different reasons. Some want the companionship and they, they, you know, dress up the dolls, they give them names, they give them backstories. Others have a fetish for dolls. Others just want to pose them because these are, these are really works of art. Some of them, they're beautifully made. So they want to just you know take pictures of them and own them as collectibles. So many different reasons. But what I find overall was that uh, by and large, pretty much everyone is incredibly respectful. Of the dolls, in that they treat them really well. No, no evidence of people buying these dolls to enact violence on them. Well, I mean, part of that's probably because they cost a lot as well. But uh, there's really that's that's not why people are buying dolls. So there's a lot of fear that people will that will encourage violence against women in some way. And I can say that I did not meet anyone who would treat the dolls as anything other than than cherished. And when I spoke to the manufacturers, they said it, it's very unusual for them to get dolls that are deliberately damaged. They get rep- they get dolls in for repair, but not through deliberate damage generally.
1: But at the same time, we see a lot of stories saying that you know at these tech shows, user or people have assaulted robots and destroyed oh. them and <laughs> soiled them. And I think there there was a story about the the first tester of Harmony, the sex robot by Abyss Creations, tested her to destruction or something like
2: that. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things to take out of that, and one is that these are these are quite fragile in terms of how they're made, so you do have to treat them quite carefully these dolls, you know, they, they, they can't stand up on their own, the silicone, silicone is... Um, it misshapes quite easily. So you've got to you know, lift them carefully, all that kind of stuff. And the the one about the sex doll being molested at the trade show, I, I looked into that in more detail and that's just not what happened. Um, so uh, that was Sergi Santos's Samantha robots and he brought it to the trade show and he had it sitting out on the, on the exhibition floor and he said to people, you can touch this. That's fine. Go ahead and touch this doll. And so people did. I mean, they weren't touching it sexually. They were just going up and pinching and poking and grabbing. The same way if you put something on display and it's unusual, people want to touch it. And this is why museums put things behind glass. And and so, you know, thousands of people passing by and touching this thing. Um, Yeah, it got a bit damaged. Nothing that wasn't fixable. But then I think, Sergi ran into some problems in that a reporter heard about this and picked it up as it had been deliberately molested, assaulted, whatever you want to call it. I think there was a lot of a lot of things going on there, like um, language differences and expressions. So um, Sergi had said, oh, the people treated it like barbarians. But he clarified later that when he said barbarians, he meant they had encountered a piece of technology that they had never used before and they didn't know how to interact with. Um, and so this got rolled out and picked up and hyped up in the media as about someone assaulting a sex robot, but it really was much more mundane than that.
1: Yeah, but as you say, I think this is an illustration of the tremendous moral panic that's associated with sex dolls and sex robots. What do you think explains that moral panic? Or or am I overinterpreting it? Is it just that journalists want sensationalism to sell stories?
2: I think there's both. There's definitely the sensationalist aspect. So, you know, sex sells robotic cell, uh, fear of automation cells, and you combine all those, you've got the perfect storm of a a tabloid headline. Uh, I think that preys on people's fear about replacement being replaced. Are we going to have our jobs taken over by robots? Are we going to have our lovers taken away by robots? And also this idea of the loss of agency, like you are going to lose out, you're going to lose control. And I think that's, that's a very strong and compelling fear, and we see it with most new technological changes. When a disruptive technology comes along, people are scared because they don't know what's going to happen. They fear the change, and it, from anything, from the printing press to the television, the reactions have been, "Well, this is going to destroy society." And of course, it's much, much more nuanced than that.
1: Yeah, but as you mentioned in the stories that you're discussing, you're talking about dolls, and mm. you said we don't have robots. So I'd actually like to just maybe pause for a moment and consider what we actually mean when we talk about a robot or a sex robot. This, just to me, this is a question that I wish I was asked more often and was taken more seriously, because one of the main criticisms of the book that I wrote, or I didn't write all the books, sorry, I edited the book, just to be clear, um, was that it was about a technology that doesn't exist, so the book was premature, we didn't need this kind of yeah. analysis or discussion. In the opening chapter of that book, I had a definition of what I think a sex robot is, and I have a very expansive definition of what a sex robot is. And I think that yeah. some of these dolls that we see at the moment that have you know, voice interaction and maybe some limited capacity to move or uh, interact with the user, to me that's a, a primitive kind of robot or an initial kind of robot. It's not super sophisticated, but I'd still classify it as a robot. Do you have a different approach to this? Um, yeah.
2: I think we, I mean, it's sort of pushing it a bit to call it a robot, I think, because what we currently have is a doll with a tiny bit of animatronics in it and perhaps a bit of AI, which may or may not be integrated. And I think that's, it's very misleading when we think of our, then the whole term robot is quite misleading because people think of certain things when they think of a robot. Um, these, These dolls can't stand up on their own. They can't move. They are stationary from the neck down. They might have some sensors in the body. They might vibrate a little, but they are basically immobile. They're not performing any actions. And usually I would expect a robot to be performing a set of actions in some way. So they don't have that movement. The Harmony robot, which is is the first commercially available one, can move her face so she can smile and blink and turn her head. Um, But that's the extent of it. So yeah, we're 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 calling them robots, but it seems to be imbuing them with much more sophistication than they actually have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with David Gunkel a couple of months back about his book on robot rights, um, which is, I guess, a tangential uh, theme or topic to this one. But he has a whole chapter in about the definition of robots, and he argues that our our kind of mental model of a robot has been so infected by science fiction that when people talk about robots, they have a conception of what that means that is quite divorced from the practical reality of robots in yeah. our world at the moment. I think you make a similar point in your book as well. Um, yeah,
2: I think that's, that's really true. Um, and if we consider the robots that are around us today, they're either factory production line robots, or they are domestic robots in the form of things like vacuum cleaners. Or they're military, like bomb disposal robots. So we don't have that many. We we have the the emergence of things like Pepper, which is sort of vaguely humanoid, you know, humanoid robot. But uh, the perception of the ones that we see in the sci-fi films or read about in the books. And there's a lovely project running out of Cambridge from the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence called AI Narratives, and they are looking at how the stories we have about robots and AI shape how we expect them to look. So that's, that's fascinating because it, it examines all sorts of things from automata through to, to speculative fiction.
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent project and there are a number of videos available online. So I think Beth Singler is the yeah, main yeah. person involved that, that I know of anyway. There are probably more people that I'm not aware of that are involved in that project. Yeah. So I mean, at the, what's the bottom line here? Should we be talking about robots at all? What kind of vocabulary should we use when we're talking about this technology?
2: Um, That's really difficult because it's a good shorthand. And it's an eye-catching shorthand and it kind of sums up what we want, you know, what what, what we want to describe in a way, which is that there is um, a machine taking the part, perhaps, of another human. Um, And that's where it gets interesting, because what aspects of the human do we need to have to call something a sex robot? And I think your, your book really exposed this really nicely there's lots of things like you know does it does it have to be human shaped and and I find that really fascinating because I'm not sure that it needs to be human shaped but I think it needs to have some form of human attributes to be able to call it the sex robot maybe I mean it might not need to have human attributes at all but I'm thinking of things like the AI does that add enough of the human element to fall under the idea of a sex robot
1: yeah I mean so I think that's the, one of the key issues here my, my sense is that it's a, it's a spectrum phenomenon as opposed to uh, there's not a binary clear division between something that is a robot and not a robot
2: yeah it's very hard even the definition of robot is quite hard to pin down I mean that's what I started My, my usual thing is what is a robot I start to define that in the chapter and then I find myself chasing loads of different things because there are lots of different definitions and I think I went with a um, an IEEE standard at the end of it all or sorry an ISO standard at the end of it all just to try and, and work out what what are these kind of definitions of what do we mean by robot so yeah I think you're right it, 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 there's so many different forms it's very it's quite nebulous
1: I don't know if the definitional question can be resolved but I do think it's an important one to ask just because it helps to clarify what we're talking about and also to encourage people to take the conversation more seriously as well, because um, some people might say, well, it's too speculative, but we're not talking about purely speculative technologies. We're talking about things that are currently available, and also we see a trajectory or development in technology that could lead to more sophisticated uh, forms of, of sex robotics as well.
2: Absolutely. Although I'm not convinced that we're we're going to get to the passively human stage at any point soon, if ever. I think we are, we're terrible at making Realistically, human robots, um, for a number of reasons, technologically mainly. Uh, so I wonder why we bother trying sometimes. And even then, when we do make ones that like seem human, then our our brain picks it up. Um, this whole uncanny valley effect that suggests that we can initially very quickly detect that it's not real. So I wonder, is it a futile thing to even go down that path?
1: Yeah, I think we'll come back to that idea just at the end, towards the end because that's yeah. maybe one of the last chapter in your book is. Uh, sets out this vision of the future where you yeah. argue for moving beyond the anthropomorphic model. But let's just dwell a little bit on the anthropomorphic model for a moment because that's where, as I said, all this moral panic arises. Yeah. So you know, what are the, the arguments that people make against this technology and are, do you find any of them compelling or interesting?
2: They're certainly interesting. Um, some of them are compelling, um, but I think there's an awful lot of Outrage and hype. So one of the things that seemed to sort of leap out, I saw a lot of articles along the lines of "this is very damaging to women because it will encourage sexual violence towards women." I find no evidence for that whatsoever, and I don't know why that's come about. This this panic. There's there's just not the evidence. So for starters, the the, the closest community we have to evaluate this is people who own sex dolls, and like I said, you know the, these are people who treat these dolls incredibly well. Um, there is this—I mean—and you have um, described this beautifully in the symbolic consequences argument from your TEDx. There's this idea that you know will it encourage a, a knock-on effect in society um, of. Of violence as well. And I think we see these things coming up again and again with things like um, will computer video games cause real world violence? And again, we've got absolutely no evidence of that either, but there'll be studies to show, to suggest both ways that there could be. So I think this is just not something that we have the evidence for. And if we look at the sheer scale of things like, Online porn access that the the amount of people accessing online porn, for example, has not led to a corresponding rise in sexual violence towards women, and so I am very hesitant to say that that would be the case, but <laughs> the other argument that the stereotyping of these sex robots into very hypersexualized and pornified female forms is a very reductive female form. That I see problematic because it perpetuates the whole problem with body image of women um, in the media, in film, in music, all of those things. So I think that there is a problem there. And uh, not necessarily in terms of its knock-on effect, but just in terms of being yet another portrayal, unrealistic portrayal of the female body.
1: So you find the stereotyping is an important concern, but the kind of consequential aspect of that, whether that leads to violence or aggression or harm, is not clear I, sh-
2: I think it's not clear at all that there would be increased violence from these sex robots uh,
1: are there any other kind of ethical or social concerns that people have about this technology that you find interesting
2: I um, there's always the, so there's always the one about the uh, child sex robots so will we have you know will will what will happen if there is someone makes a childlike version of these robots. Uh, again, this is something that you've addressed really well, so I, I don't want to take away from from your arguments for it. So just as essentially, I think this is perhaps somewhere where we have to be more cautious, simply because it mirrors a real world situation where there are vulnerable people involved, um, where there are children involved. But we don't have evidence, we just don't. And again, how are we going to get that evidence? Because what well, ethics committee is going to clear a study on this to show whether or not it's a gateway effect of further abuse, or if it's some kind of proxy that could alleviate abuse. So it's a very tricky area.
1: But there have been some studies that you mentioned in your book about the use of, of virtual reality to test whether certain treatment programs have been effective for- That's
2: right. So the University of Montreal did a study in VR to see whether or not sex offenders um, were re- rehabilitated by putting them in virtual reality simulations that would cause arousal if if their treatment hadn't worked. And so there is the possibility that that kind of thing you know could be used with a sex robot, for example. Although the people who ran that study, one of the people involved in the study has said that they would not recommend that. So I think it's difficult um, to see. I mean, this again, this leads to bigger questions, like what is the difference between having a virtual simulation and having a physical copy? Because I'm... I'm really uncertain of this as well. I, I'm not actually sure. Um, virtual reality, it's illegal to make any kind of computer generated imagery of child abuse in this country in in, in quite a lot of Europe. So I, I I don't know. Is it possible that we could have one and not the other? I don't know. So I think that is the area where I, in in terms of the lack of evidence, there is a vulnerable group here and we should be cautious.
1: I have a new paper coming out on this topic in the new year, or this year, sorry. So later this year there will be a paper coming out. And I've also reviewed at least three papers on this topic in the past couple of months by other people. So I think there's going to be a lot of contributions to the debate about child sex dolls yeah. and child sex robots in the next 12 months, uh, which I don't know. Again, all of it is based on a lack of evidence, which is something that I I comment on in my paper. Um, But I think the big challenge is whether we should regulate the technology in such a way that we even consider the possibility of trying to acquire such evidence. Yeah. That's the big challenge, I think.
2: Yeah, it is. It's difficult. I mean, we can can look at the parallels again with with the sex dolls. There are cases where people are buying childlike sex dolls, and there were something like 123 of these seized last year or two years ago in the UK, and there were prosecutions Seven prosecutions, as far as I know, and of the because you can't you can't be prosecuted for owning one. It has to be done under a very arcane, archaic um law on import. So the people who were prosecuted, I think six of those people had images of child abuse on their computers as well. So this is really tricky. I think that's closest parallel. We, but yeah, actually, you know, looking into that, it's just such a difficult area to to. To work out, it's a very controversial area and something that needs to is very sensitive, and we need to look at. But yeah, you're right. How do we go about getting that evidence?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the CPS in the UK clamped down on this a couple of years ago through the, I think it's like an 1800 statute on the importation of obscene objects. Yes, that's right.
2: So even then they have to, the objects, I think, uh, certainly in in terms of the the sex doll case, there was one in in Canada as well. There has to be a decision on what what actually makes a doll an obscene item, you know, or, or one that's... built for sexual purposes. So it's really hard to even determine in class what these are.
1: Yeah, because I mean, there are childlike dolls that are made for legitimate purposes for uh, in movie sets and also you know medical education so
2: and there's also there are smaller versions of sex dolls that are made sort of more portable ones and i think the difference there is some of them are maybe misleading not misleadingly but could be construed as being childlike but then others have very very clearly got um mature bodies as it were so they are smaller dolls but they have they are definitely post-pubescent so they will have dolls with breasts and things like that so i think this is yeah there's a lot to work out about who's who's important what yeah
1: and it's also a a tricky thing to legislate for because you're you're trying to create a definition of what the objects are that doesn't um unfairly or illegitimately exclude dolls that are used for some kind of legitimate purpose or yeah yeah Yeah. so it strikes me as a thing that's very tricky to to deal with Uh, Let's shift, though, completely in tone and topic to, we talked about the moral panic and the disadvantages of the technology. What are the actual, maybe social advantages? What are the things that people should be looking at as a positive of this technology, but aren't?
2: I think there are, initially, the the people who want these sex robots certainly when i talked to real doll about this um because they're developing harmony they said that they the reason they went into developing this was because so many of their customers said we wish our dolls were more interactive so they want that aspect of companionship um and i think we see again it's the same thing where you know you have either people looking for companionship and these sex robots could give them that um more of that or you have People with the fetish who are interested in it because they are the robots. That's that's what gets them off. Um so I think there is this idea that you could have pleasure and companionship from some technology. I think if you look wider outside of them, if outside of this idea of the very reductive female stereotype of a sex robot, it could be really good for for increasing or encouraging. Intimacy and pleasure um, amongst groups of people who might want it, whether or not that they're isolated from society, or whether you know they just want to have this as part of their sex life. Uh, I think that, I think that pleasure is something that's really positive and beneficial, and and that the world is a good place if it has pleasure in it. So I think that the technology itself uh, could be very beneficial.
1: On the companionship question, so I I found that interesting in your. Was it an interview you did with Matt McMullen from Abyss? Uh, you, yeah,
2: that's right. Yeah.
1: So you quote him as saying that, you know, we're all in on the companionship angle. Like that's to him the most important part of developing this technology. And I think he said this repeatedly in a number of interviews. He
2: did. He's really stressed this. This to him is the thing is the, you know, this is why they've invested heavily in the AI side of it. Um, which is, it, it's, you know, he, they've, they've done quite a, a decent Job with their AI, um, they've got a really nice app and good interface going. Um, but for him, he said that that is what's important. And he, you know, he's worked with these customers for years and years and years, and they've been going about fifteen years now. And you know, by and large, people are looking for that companionship. And that's what he feels it can offer
1: them. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a couple of questions about that. One was do you think that's just an attempt to kind of cover for the fact that really what people use these for is sexual gratification and release, or do you think it is a genuine interest in companionship?
2: No, there's definitely a genuine interest in companionship, definitely. Um, And the doll owners themselves have said that. So, I talked to Dave Katz, who is one of the most sort of outspoken of the community. So, he's he's really candid about his life with his dolls. And he's, you know, the, the. to him, the the sex is not the driving force here. It's the dolls, it's it's giving them characters, it's living with them, it's having them in his life. And I think that's the case for a lot of the people who buy the dolls.
1: The other aspect of this then is, you know, you mentioned earlier that all the dolls to date have been well the majority of them have been female in form I mean real doll do make male form robots as, or dolls as far as I know and they are making a a male model or
2: yeah yeah so they are making a real male model called henry of the sex robot which does not unlike all the tabloids uh, it does not have a bionic penis <laughs> there was a headline last week for I think, in the metro saying bionic penis sex robots are coming no it definitely doesn't um so yeah they are by and large female formed um real doll have been making. Male sex dolls for a while. They do have female customers who buy those, and also gay men. It's very hard to find female doll owners who will talk openly um, about owning a, a male sex doll. Um, there have been a couple of documentaries with that as the focus, but but by and large, it, you know, men face a lot of judgment for it, women, even more so probably. Um, the Henry robot that um, Real Doll or Developer Robotics are developing is um, again, it's it's, it's a doll with an animatronic head and they're having to tweak the AI personality so that the the terms are much more male gendered. So, you know, whereas Harmony will say things like, I'll put on a nice dress for you. Henry doesn't get to say that, which I think is quite unfair for Henry, really. Um, So there are these changes and tweaks to it. Um, Whether or not there's the same market, it's really interesting because the, the market has it's been very much an area that's constantly marketed to men. The default assumption, and this is kind of a microcosm of Silicon Valley, the default assumption is that the end user is a straight male. Um, and, you know, I've heard people say, well, women don't want sex robots. And I'm not entirely sure that's true. You might not want him in want them in the form that they're currently in. But you know, I I think also women have never been given the chance to do that. But however, women are well catered for, fortunately, in the sex toy market. But one of the things that struck me as interesting was this companionship element. And I think that perhaps and this is this is supposition on my part, perhaps it's that men may find it harder to get that companionship. Whereas women, who have been, down the centuries, emotional gatekeepers and in charge of fostering communication and fostering companionship, I think women will find the companionship much, much easier than men. And so they don't need as much this artificial alternative.
1: So, uh, the the one stereotypical view is that women will want more companionship. So, the reason why sex dolls to, to date haven't appealed to women is because they are lifeless and they don't have any interaction or a companionship element to it. and if there was that companionship element that would be more appealing to them that's kind of the model you see in ai the the movie with um, jude yeah. law but you basically disagree with that characterization is that correct
2: i do yeah i do i think that women are through socialization over the years women are find it much easier to form companionship bonds with people and i think you know they That idea of of having someone who is always there for you to listen to you, I don't think that that's necessarily what the women want, Um, or right, not want. That's not necessarily what the women need. In comparison, but I don't want to go into sweeping generalizations because that's (laughs) I'm not going to speak for all women, Um, and I don't want to get bogged down in sort of you know sort of gendered traits, socialized or not. But I just I just find it interesting that in the history of the sex doll it's primarily overwhelmingly a male thing. Whereas women can get a good experience from, you know, they get pleasure from a sex toy. And maybe their lives, I don't just mean that they're, they've they've got a man in their life that they can turn to for companionship. I mean, their lives in general are, perhaps it's easier to foster social relationships if you're a female.
1: And also, I guess there's much more taboo or shame associated with female sexuality historically probably uh, the the idea of women being enjoying sexual pleasure is... definitely
2: it's something that has been you know sort of down you know over the years has really been pushed on this idea that women should be having sexual pleasure and so it's much less accepted um we're seeing a bit of a revolution in that now i think that, that certainly the past five or ten years sex toys have become much more mainstream and increasingly so although you know we've got the the whole fiasco went on this week um, uh, with the um, Consumer Electronics Show, with the, they awarded a prize to um, a vibrator and then took away the prize for some spurious reason, probably immorality. So you know, I think there's still this shaming going on of, of sex when it comes to women. This is the same trade show that showed you know, unveiled the sex robot last year, and yet a vibrator is problematic.
1: Yeah, it's the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas that's, that's taking right, place right. the week that we're talking. Uh, probably not the week that this is released though, so it yeah. might, might be a bit of a distant story. But yeah, so they gave a prize to a, a, a sex toy, a smart sex toy, but then took it away due to, we presume, reasons associated with perceptions of immorality, which seem odd. Yeah. As you point out, there's an odd double standard taking place there. Huge
2: double standard, yeah.
1: And this is something that um, you know some of the pioneering female entrepreneurs in the sex tech industry have spoken about quite a lot. So Cindy Gallup would be one of the main voices on this.
2: Yeah. And as Cindy said, it's not about can we have sex tech um, becoming a big thing? It's about can we have sex tech becoming part of tech? Can we have it more mainstream? And I completely agree with her. We shouldn't be trying to push this as some special category, we should be including it in all the technology that we use. We should be saying, why is this not an acceptable form of technology? This is something that's fundamental to human existence, sex, and we shouldn't be ashamed of developing technology that brings people pleasure.
1: What about the use of sex tech and sex robots or dolls more generally as a, a f- kind of therapy or th- for therapeutic reasons for people who are sexually excluded or sexually traumatized in some way. Do you see that as something that should be pursued?
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think there there already have been sex toys being redesigned to help people who've been through sexual trauma. Um, and I think that's a, a really, really positive thing. And it can be, you know, this is something that, that can be addressed through therapy for sure. And, uh, you know, it, it's a chance to give people who may have problems, physiologically, psychologically, whatever, with sex, a chance, a reintroduction of sexual feeling um, while in a a very safe environment. So I think it really, really is um, a very beneficial thing, and it could be a very positive thing, yeah.
1: Let's talk then about the non-anthropomorphic forms of sex text. As I say, this is a a theme that runs throughout your book, but comes to the fore in the last chapter in, in particular. Uh, So, I thought maybe we could approach this from a slightly obtuse angle, which is just tell me about the exquisite corpses game that you played with the students in St. Martin's College.
2: Oh, yeah, that was really fun. So we went along there to do a workshop. And um, was corpses is the game where you, you draw a head and you fold the page over, then you pass it on to someone. They draw the body, they fold the page over, they pass it on to someone. They do the legs, pass it on. Someone else does the feet. And then you unveil it by opening it up. And so we played a game where we asked people to design their ideal sex robots by doing this, and it you know had in lots of different things. And it was so fun and interesting as a way to explore just what things could be possible so we had people drawing you know brushes for arms or tentacles as legs or wings or you know tv screens for heads all sorts of things and i just thought that was so cool it's a way of really shaking things up and thinking how do we get away from this anthropomorphic idea this this idea of trying to do a replica human because i think it's much more achievable and so if we if we move away from that we're not restricting ourselves to this whole uncanny valley problem we're not restricting what we can do technologically we're developing new forms and what fascinates me is the way that uh so i've taught interaction design for years i've been working in human computer interaction and what interests me is how software engineering has moved from the initial let's get a very functional program out there and who cares how it's used to a discipline where it has to feed into human-computer interaction. And we have user experience experts coming along saying, no, this is how we have to develop it to cater for the end user. And I think software engineering, computers have moved from this functional phase to this design phase. And I think that sex robots could do that too. Sex toys definitely have. They've moved away from the whole Let's build replica genitals to let's build abstract, beautiful designs. And I don't see why we can't do that with sex robots.
1: I'm going to formalize this argument that you're making in the last chapter. I know you don't present it necessarily in these terms, but it seems to me there's two interesting claims that you make. One is that it is difficult to make the anthropomorphic form of sex tech, a sex robot in particular. So a fully functional humanoid sex robot would be a very difficult thing to make because of not just the, the technical limitations to it, but also the social acceptability of it because yeah. of the uncanny valley effect that you mentioned. So that's yeah. one claim. But then the second claim, which is possibly the more interesting claim, is that it might actually be more desirable to create non-anthropomorphic forms of sex tech, that they might be more pleasurable, more enjoyable for the end user. So in one way you can think about this is that evolution is a satisficing process, not an optimizing process. So there's no guarantee that we've made the optimal form of
2: Absolutely, um,
1: yeah. you know, sex organ or whatever. So we can actually yeah. <laughs> be more inventive with technology. <laughs> that's
2: right. I mean, we can, see, we, we can clearly see that from uh, the development of sex toys. So the, the rabbit vibrator is very, po- very very popular um, in a way that's almost uh, optimized the penis, as it were, because it's added bits on. So yeah, we could do definitely do interesting things. And I think that's the exciting thing, is that we have so many new materials, new technologies, and interestingly, with wearables, we have a lot of of bio information that we can use to get biofeedback, and that could be a very exciting thing to build in as well. So the scope to to move things into a new phase is definitely there, and that's sort of why I set up the sex tech hack, was to explore that kind of thing. And it was really, really good. I I didn't really know what to expect. We went into that and we ran it twice and just the, the visions of new forms of immersive experiences or embodied experiences or even just sex toys that are outside what we normally think of. That was incredible.
1: Could you maybe talk about some of the examples that came out of those those hackathons and where you maybe see these this non anthropomorphic sex tech developing in the future?
2: Yeah, so the first year we ran it, the, the winning team, um, they came up with uh, um, soft silicon robotics. So they had poured the silicon molds um, and into tentacles that curl, you could put them anywhere in your body, and with a controller, it would squeeze air into them that would make the tentacles curl. So you had this amazing way of just uh, you know a a very accessible piece of technology that could be used anywhere in the body that was sort of customizable really and we thought that was fascinating a really interesting way of doing things very organic seeming and then there was another entry that i really loved um and it was called peacock and they said you know if you 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 can tell if if someone is a rise and they have a penis you can tell very easily very visually um but you can't tell Um, if someone has arised and they have a vagina. So they said, well, what we're going to do is we'll get a a vaginal egg, little toy, and we'll put moisture sensors on it. And when those moisture sensors are triggered due to arisal, they will drive a peacock's tail. They made one out of paper as proof of concept, and this big peacock's tail opened up to show that the person wearing wearing the vaginal egg was arised. And I just thought that was amazing, not just in terms of a concept and artistically or anything like that, but the possibility to extend that into prosthetics would be really interesting as well.
1: So then tell me also about the idea of a sex duvet, which (laughs) features in your...
2: I joke about the sex duvet, but actually I think it's quite cool. Um, So what what if we had a, a, a quilt or a duvet that you could wrap around yourself and it would perhaps it would murmur to you, it would hug you, it would hold you, perhaps it has vibrating bits, perhaps it has protruding bits, perhaps it has cavities, I don't know, whatever you want. Um, and I just think this idea of something very tactile, you know, we've got, we can build smart fabrics now, you know, what if you had a, a something that was velvet that you could stroke and it could stroke you back, for example. So I think that the idea... Um, for me, it would be about moving away purely from the idea of sex and into these different realms of sensuality and intimacy um, to give you kind of really a range of experiences. And I just think that would be that would be incredibly soothing, to sort of lying on bed, being cuddled by your nuve. Yeah, that's one of, my, one of my favorite examples.
1: Yeah, I, there's a passage in your book where you describe this It's just quite poetic, which I encourage people to read. It's on page 262 of your book. Yeah. So for people who have a copy of it, they can read it. I won't read it out right now because I might blush if I read the content of okay. it. So, <laughs> right. I, I mean, just a couple of other questions before we wrap up then. Um I did want to talk a little bit about we we mentioned this already a bit about the media fascination in this topic. Um do you think that the media fascination is destructive or helpful or do, are you just ambivalent about it?
2: I think it's quite destructive. Um there have been stories that kind of get the point across quite well. So when we ran Love and Sex with Robots in 2016 there were so many stories. I think we had something like 50 academic delegates at the, at the conference and 40 journalists. And actually that made for a great conference because we we brought in people speaking, you know, we, we mixed it up so that people responding weren't, you know, weren't just the academics. We got everyone involved in the discussions, which was really good. But a lot of the stories that came out, the tabloid stories that came out were incredibly sensationalist versions of the papers. So, you know, you get headlines like, um, put, sex robots in old people's homes, or, you know, it caused outrage in the Daily Mail, or, um, you know, sex robots will fuck us all to death, which was actually quite a, a tongue-in-cheek story. It was deliberately being quite wry from Gizmodo. Um, the coverage was, once you delved into the story, often the coverage was reasonable. Um, but there's just so much titillation that goes on in, in some of the tabloids. You know, there's quite, it's quite egregious. And uh, I think it just it trivialises the whole thing so much. When we want to actually have people think about it beyond what what the papers are saying, so you know, I want to encourage people to think about if you had a a sex toy or a sex robot or something, and you brought you pleasure, like sexual pleasure in your life, what would it look like? What would it be like? What would you, you know, would you what would you think about it? And I, I think those headlines are really just hammering home yet more sort of stereotypes and really kind of shutting down rather than opening up discussion, they're, they're, they're sort of propelling the fear, promoting the fear.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, myself, in that it illustrates that there's an appetite for or interest in the topic, which could be harnessed towards good ends or good for good purposes, but actually it's all being channeled in the direction of this, this moral panic and moral fear really around it, which is unfortunate, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so the other question I wanted to ask is something i mentioned to you as well which is just that you know you've done a lot of interviews about this topic what's the question that you get asked most often that you think is not very interesting or not worth asking and what do you say in response to that question
2: it's probably are are we all going to have our lovers replaced by robots is this going to mean an end of human human relation, human relationships and you know that, okay that's not a bad question um it's just no, I, I definitely don't think so. I think this is, I, I, from from having researched it, I can't see how that could ever be possible, which is sort of unfair because other people haven't looked into it maybe. But um, I think that there is this concern and I just don't ever see it happening. I don't think so. I think we are fundamentally human and we will be seeking out other humans. However, we are entering a world or entering a time when, Robots and AI is playing an increasing importance in our lives, and we will form new relationships with those, but I don't think they're going to replace the human relationships we have. And I've, I've talked at length about this with Julie Carpenter, who works on how we relate to robots and emotionally and how we relate socially to them, and I agree very strongly with her that we're looking at a new category of social interaction, and that's a very interesting thing. But it's not a replacement of humans. We're augmenting our own relationships through technology, but we're also learning how to navigate a world where we form relationships with machines. But it's not going to be the same as the way we relate to humans. We know that they are machines. We can accommodate that. We're not going to mistake them for humans. Um, although there are times when we mistake AI for humans in you know in everyday life, but I think we're you know if we have we, we've got, we're always going to be aware of how to deal with them. And I think we need to establish how those relationships go forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think those are, that's a good point, probably a good point to end on. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me for this conversation, Kate.
2: Thank you very much.
1: And let me just reiterate my recommendation at the outset to everybody to, to buy your book. It's uh, an excellent overview and it's detailed, thoughtful, and fascinating. I learned a lot from it. And this is actually a topic that I Research, so you'd think that I wouldn't, but I actually did learn <laughs> well, a lot from. Right, it. I
2: mean, right back at you, because um, I I think that if you're looking for the, the in-depth academic knowledge on this, then you know your book is, is the go-to
1: place. Yeah. I also did get the um, audio version of it as as well as the hardback <laughs> copy, yes. which I listened yes. to in the car, which was yeah. great. Yeah.
2: Um, that's that's quite that was quite amusing doing that because uh, I didn't. You, you when you read your own book through again, you suddenly see all the errors. But also, um, my mother thinks this is hilarious because she says I'm putting on a very posh voice for it and I had to explain that that's my that's my voice for talking to English people
1: <laughs> that's your that's your radio voice, it's <laughs> it's ho- radio voice. <laughs> honed from your many appearances on BBC radio that's it that's right <laughs> yeah no it was good uh, what I liked about it was that it, you know you emphasize points in the book that I wouldn't have emphasized when I was reading it and I thought the the jokes worked quite well as well in oh, good. the audio format <laughs> yeah. okay anyway thanks very much again Kate Thank you. Bye.